now, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 3. The title for today's message is Grace Will See You Through. Grace Will See You Through. Ruth, I want to read to you the key verse from Ruth chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your handmaid. Spread, therefore, your skirt over your handmaid, for you are a near kinsman. Ruth chapter 3. This morning, as we continue our study throughout the book of Ruth, I want to just pick us up from where we left off. So if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, when we began this study, we were introduced to a Jewish family in the city of Bethlehem, the, city, the family of Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. And as this family was in Bethlehem, we see that a severe famine came to the land, and Elimelech takes his family and flees to the pagan nation of Moab. The family, once they get to Moab, encounters tragedy after tragedy after tragedy as the father and then the two sons, Malon and Chilion, all pass away within a few short years, leaving the mother Naomi alone with the new daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. These three women now are left widowed, but not only widowed, but also childless. And as Naomi is in the middle of her grieving and things seem to go from bad to worse, she gets word that things in Bethlehem have started to take a turn, that the famine which the city of Bethlehem was once in had ended, that God had returned to his people and was providing rain for the crops. So Naomi takes Ruth, her daughter-in-law, the Moabite, and heads to Bethlehem. One day as they get back to Bethlehem, Ruth decides to go out to the field and to glean behind the reapers. As a widow, she had the right to go behind the fields that had recently been harvested and pick up the leftover barley and wheat that was left on the ground. So while she's doing this, she has a divine interaction with a man named Boaz. Boaz approaches Ruth and tells her that he has heard of her loyalty to Naomi, but not only her loyalty to Naomi, also her loyalty to the God of Israel. And as a result, Boaz offers protection and provision to Ruth. So after Ruth has this, this providential meeting with Boaz, she returns home to Naomi to tell her all about her day. And as she begins explaining to Naomi this man that she met, Naomi looks at her and says, this man, Boaz, is a kinsman redeemer. In other words, according to Mosaic law, Boaz had the capability of rescuing the family name of a childless widow through marriage, effectively resolving the difficulties that both Ruth and Naomi were facing. In Ruth chapter 1, we saw the sovereignty of God as we saw God take a bad situation in Moab and work it all out for good as they returned to Bethlehem. In Ruth chapter 2, we saw the providence of God as it just so happened that Ruth the Moabitess was working in the field 
of her kinsman, Redeemer. And as we look at our text this morning, I believe there is a lesson for us to learn about God's grace. You know, grace is a term that is synonymous with Christianity. We preach about grace. We name our churches grace. We name our children grace. We sing about grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, the gospel message is the good news of God's grace. Grace is an essential character or an essential part of God's character. Grace is closely related to God's kindness, to God's love, to his mercy. You know, grace can be defined as God's favor toward the unworthy. In his grace, God is willing to abundantly forgive us and abundantly bless us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be treated so well and that we don't deserve to be dealt with so generously. On the most basic of levels, this this term grace, this idea of grace is the idea of being given something that we do not deserve. Grace is taking your child for ice cream after they got in trouble at school. Grace is getting a promotion at work after being written up for being late. Listen, grace is scandalous. Grace makes absolutely no sense. But grace is something that we all desire. We all want favor. We all want redemption. We all want to be blessed and treated well and dealt with generously. And as we come to chapter 3 of Ruth, we find that Naomi and Ruth are at a place in their life where they also are longing for grace. As you step into chapter 3, you find that while God has providentially cared for Ruth and Naomi, he has provided for them and he has protected them. And the end of chapter 2, we see that, that Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's fields for about three months. She started in the barley harvest and goes into the wheat harvest. God has no doubt cared for and provided for Ruth and Naomi. But the true tension of the book is still not resolved. As you come to Ruth chapter 3, Ruth is still single. Ruth is still living with her her mother-in-law. Ruth still has no child. She's vulnerable and she is still in need of redemption. Verse 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest? For thee, that it may be well with thee. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens you were. Behold, he winnows barley tonight in the threshing floor. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we find Naomi reiterating the words that she said to Ruth back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Naomi told Ruth, listen, it's time to leave me and go and find rest and find security in a husband. You know, this this isn't really the message of this text, but I think just seeing that symbolism there is also a reminder to our marriages and our relationships today. We see that Naomi expects there to be rest. She expects there to be protection, to be security, for the marriage covenant to be a covenant of providing for one another. You know, and I think that in our own relationships, that's something that we should be striving towards, that we should be longing for, that our 
relationships as spouses would be ones that are loving, ones that are of protection and security and rest. The only difference is that in chapter 1, when Naomi tells Ruth to go and find a husband, she says, return to Moab. She says, go back to Moab and find a husband that you can find rest in. But now in chapter 3, things have changed a little bit. In chapter 3, Naomi looks at Ruth and she says, it's time to go after Boaz. Given our initial introduction to Boaz in chapter 2 and his abundantly gracious interaction with Ruth, we can only imagine that over the past few months as Ruth has accepted Boaz's invitation to stay in his field, that Boaz has continued in his, his, his love. He has continued in just abundantly providing for Ruth. In chapter 2, Naomi has been given a new sense of hope. In chapter 1, Naomi said, I came home bitter, I came home empty. Yet in chapter 2, we were introduced to Boaz, and there's this hope that is given to her as she sees that there is somebody there that is able to redeem her situation. I can imagine that each day as Ruth returned home from working in the fields, that Naomi is just sitting there just waiting on her to come in and badger her with questions. I'm sure she quickly went from Naomi, how did your day go, to how was Boaz? Has Boaz asked you on a date yet? Has, has Boaz made any moves towards you? Do you think that there's something, is there some type of spark between you and Boaz? As the days went on, as they went from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest, Ruth remained single, and Naomi quickly began to grow impatient. So like a reality dating show, Naomi schemes up a plan. She says, tonight, Boaz is going to be on the threshing floor winnowing barley. It just means the threshing floor was a hard, dirt, concrete type of clean floor that they would take the stalks of grain and they would separate the grains from the stalks. And so Boaz is there working on the threshing floor that night and Naomi says, it's time. It's time. The beginning of verse 3, she says, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put your raiment upon thee and get thee down to the floor. You know, Naomi understands some of the necessities of trying to find a spouse. Naomi says, Ruth, you smell like outside. She says, get in the house, wash all that dirt, wash all that grime off of your body, and then once you get out of the bath, I want you to take some oil and anoint yourself with some oil, some perfume, so that you smell good. She says, you know, not only do you smell like outside, but you also look like outside, daughter. She says, after you wash yourself and you put your perfume on, don't, don't go and put your dirty clothes back on, but rather put on your best piece of garment so that you can appeal to the eyes of Boaz. You know, and while Naomi's instructions on securing a date make sense to us, the original Jewish audience, as they would have read this, they would have known that there was a greater significance to Naomi's directions. This instruction to wash, anoint, and clothe was more than just to impress Boaz to go on a date. Really what it was, was Ruth telling Boaz, take me as your wife. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord speaks of his love for Israel. 
And he talks about how he has entered into a marriage covenant with the nation of Israel and claimed them as his own. In Ezekiel 16, verse 9 and 10, the Bible says, Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. And I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And even more so as a widow, this process of washing, anointing, and clothing had even more significance. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, it says, So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David has just lost his first son with Bathsheba. And David is in a state of mourning, a state of grieving, rightfully so. But by washing, anointing, and putting on new clothes, David signified that his period of mourning was over as he went to go and worship the Lord. So dressing as Naomi had instructed her not only enhanced Ruth's, Ruth's appearance and attractiveness to Boaz, but, but what it also did was symbolize an end to her period of mourning, showing Boaz that Ruth was now willing and available and able to remarry. So as Naomi continues instructing Ruth, she says, once you get to the threshing floor, don't make yourself known. So, I mean, it's, just, it's kind of weird. You can just see Ruth. She says, you know, put on clean clothes, wash yourself, smell good so you can impress them. But when you get there, don't let them see you. All right? So it's like, that's kind of odd. But then as Naomi continues, you start to see the wisdom that Naomi has gained. Because Naomi says, don't make yourself known until after Boaz has eaten and after Boaz has drank. See, Naomi recognizes that the best time to have an important conversation with somebody is after their belly is full. When they're no longer in a state of, of, of being hangry from a long day at work. So up to this point, Naomi's marriage proposal makes sense, kind of. There's a little bit of just some little oddities in there of hiding from him. But then as you continue, she says, she says make yourself attractive and make sure Boaz is in a good mood. And then as you go to verse 4, things start to get a little bit weird, honestly. It's, Ruth chapter 3 is just an odd chapter. It really is. See, for most people, when they plan on having a marriage proposal, they do it at a place and in a way that is not only memorable, but also cute, right? So I remember when me and Brooke got married, when I, when, or not when we got married, but when I proposed to Brooke, she was visiting. I was down in Florida, and she was visiting, and I told her, hey, in the morning, let's just go to the beach and go for a walk, you know, so we're walking on the beach, and, you know, I'm like, I, think I got this perfect idea in my head, you know, the, the sunrise is going to be coming up over the ocean. There's going to be the pinks and the oranges. It's going to be glistening off her face, you know, because I'm such a romantic, and so I proposed to Brooke at the sun, during the sunrise on the beach this past week. Ethan, that does our sound booth back there, also proposed to Mimi on the beach. You know, usually when we propose in marriage, we want it to be a moment to remember. And so as we continue in Naomi's proposal that she gives to Ruth, it 
is definitely memorable, but it's also highly questionable. Look at verse 4. She says, And it shall be when he lies down that you shall mark or you shall find the place where he lies, and then you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lay there, and he will tell you what to do. I don't know if you're anything like me after reading this verse. I was, I was left scratching my head a little bit. Like, what? Like, so, all right, so I'm getting clean. I'm getting pretty. All right, I understand. I got to wait for him to fill his belly. I'm going to spy on him a little bit. But then I'm waiting for him to fall asleep. And I'm going to go where he's sleeping, take the sheet off his feet, and wait for him to wake up. Like, it's, just, it's just really, really odd. You know, I, I, I read this and I cringe. There's like a secondhand embarrassment that's going on. But I, I can only imagine what Ruth was thinking as Naomi's giving her these instructions. She's probably just looking at Naomi like, what in the world? You see, Naomi longed for redemption. She longed for some type of grace for herself and for Ruth. And she believed that the grace and the redemption that she needed was found and Boaz. You know, aside from just the surface level oddness and weirdity of Naomi's instructions, I, I want you to understand that during the days of the judges, which this story is taking place in, the threshing floor was not a place for a woman to be. If you look in Hosea 9 verse 1, it talks about how the threshing floor was a place where the men would gather and where prostitution was prevalent. A woman on the threshing floor at this hour would be at risk. And it would be within Boaz's earthly sensibilities to think that as Ruth is laying at his feet, that she is offering herself to him like a prostitute. In securing grace, Naomi is willing to do whatever it takes, even if it, makes, even if it means sin, even if it means putting her daughter in a vulnerable position. It's almost as if Naomi never learned from their decision to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. Once things aren't going as quickly as Naomi thought that they should be going, Naomi decides to take things into her own hands. And as we see Naomi try to exploit Boaz's grace, what I want to share with you this morning is that God's grace cannot be manipulated. Listen, you can't manipulate God's saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells that it's by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen, your, your relationship with God is not established on what you do or on what you are doing, but rather your relationship with God is, is established. The foundation of your relationship with God is what Christ has already done. Just as you can't manipulate God's saving grace, you can't somehow earn your way to God, you can't work your way to God, you can't trick God into accepting you and showing favor on you, you can't manipulate his sustaining, ongoing grace either. You know, I feel like so often I've seen Christians where we understand that we are saved by grace. Like, we get it, you know, like, okay, there's nothing I can do. I have to call upon the name of the Lord and I will be saved. But once I do that, then all of a sudden I have this 
belief that it's my works that lead to God blessing me. That now, after being saved by God's grace, that I can achieve God's grace further on in my life by working for it. You know, we so want God to help in our times of need, to comfort us in our times of mourning, to strengthen us in our times of weakness. That often we inherently think that if I just pray long enough, if I sing praise loud enough, if I give enough money or I attend enough worship services, then God will be obligated to give me the grace that I need. You know, while obedience is a part of the Christian life, your obedience to God does not obligate him to give you grace, but rather his grace obligates us to be obedient to him. God does not owe you. You know, it's said that during the Spanish-American War, Teddy Roosevelt came to Clara Barton of the Red Cross to buy some supplies for some of the men who were wounded and in need of help. And when he asked Clara Barton to buy the supplies, Clara looks at him and denies them. She says, no, you can't buy any supplies. And Teddy Roosevelt begins to plead with her. How, how do I get these supplies? I have these men that are sick, these men that need help. And Barton replies, just ask for them, Colonel. Just ask for them. Listen, God's grace is unmerited. God's grace is not something that we can earn. God's grace is not something that you can buy. God's grace is not something that we can trick out of him or manipulate him to give to us, but rather it is something that he freely gives to those he loves. Naomi thought that she could manipulate and take advantage of Boaz's grace to get what she wanted. I mean, just think about it. There's really no reason for Ruth to have to go to the threshing floor at night. Ruth works in Boaz's field every single day. Ruth could have easily had this conversation while Boaz was at his field. She could have easily had this conversation during better circumstances. You know, we saw in chapter 2 that Boaz was a man of great honor. Boaz was a godly man. You know, we know from the character of Boaz that Boaz was not a man that needed to be manipulated. You know, and despite the seemingly strange advice. As you continue in our text, we find that unsurprisingly, Ruth agrees and obeys her mother-in-law. You know, in the time that we've known Ruth, very, from the very beginning, where she tells Naomi, listen, your people will be my people, your people will be my God. We've seen the loyalty and just the, 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 the godliness of Ruth. We've seen the righteousness of this woman. And just as she followed her mother-in-law to Bethlehem in faith, Ruth decides to obey her mother-in-law's instructions in faith. Verse 5, verse 5 says, And she said unto her, All that you say I will do. And she went down into the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and covered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. And, return, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So now as we get to verses 5 through 8, 
Naomi's plan is underway. Ruth cleans herself up. She creeps to the threshing floor. She hides in the bushes, watching, waiting for Boaz to finish eating. Once he finishes eating, he goes and lays down. Ruth then tiptoes over to his feet, uncovers his toes, and lays down at the end of his feet. You know, and like any normal human being, when that cold air from the outside wind hit Boaz's toes, Boaz woke up. Except when he woke up, to his surprise, there was a shadowy figure of a woman at his feet. Verse 9, he says, and he said, who are you? You got to remember that the threshing floor is outside and there's no street light, so it's dark outside. So all he sees is just this shadow. He can't make out exactly who Ruth is. So he looks at her. He says, he sees this woman. He says, who are you? And Ruth answers and says, I am Ruth, your handmaid. Spread, therefore, your skirt over your handmaid, for you are a near kinsman. In verse 4 of chapter 3, Naomi instructs Ruth to allow Boaz to take the lead. She is inferring that, listen, that if you allow Boaz, he will be the one that will propose to you. But as we see in verse 9, Ruth has a change of plans. And with courageous boldness, Ruth proposes to Boaz in marriage. I want us to take you back to Ezekiel 16. In Ezekiel 16, which we looked at earlier, verses 9 and 10, but in verse 8, God says, When I passed by thee, I looked upon you. Behold, your time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swear unto you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine. To spread a skirt over one in the east is a symbolic action, a symbolic gesture that denotes protection. To this day in many parts of the east, to say of anyone that he's put his skirt over a woman is synonymous with saying that that man is married to this woman. So when Ruth asked Boaz to spread his skirt over her, she expresses her desire that Boaz's provision and Boaz's protection that he was given to her in the fields would extend further into marriage. Often the, the beauty of scripture is lost in translation. You know, there's just some words that don't translate seamlessly from the Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in, to the English. And the Hebrew word kanap is the word that is translated skirt in verse 9. This Hebrew word kanap is also translated wing in the English Bible. It's the idea of a protective covering, of a protective covering. So whether it's a skirt or a garment that we are this protective covering or it's a wing that has a protective covering. You know, if you remember in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12, Boaz said to Ruth, "The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose knap, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So now in chapter 3, Ruth is saying to Boaz, the same refuge that I came to find in God 
is the same refuge that I want to find in you. I mean, it's this beautiful, it's this, this idea. She uses Boaz's own words to say, Boaz, you are the fulfillment of the blessing which you prayed over me in chapter 2. You know, the boldness of Ruth is a faith worth emulating. Not only is this whole scenario bold, because most often the woman does not propose to the man. And Boaz with bold faith, or Ruth with bold faith, proposes to Boaz. But not only is Ruth just proposing to Boaz, remember Ruth is a Moabite woman, a woman that was an enemy of, from the nation that was enemies of the Israelites, a woman from the nation where the women were known for their sexual immorality. And here she is, this Moabite woman, saying to Boaz, this godly Israelite man, will you marry me? You know, God's grace should give us bold faith. While Naomi wanted to manipulate Boaz's grace and Boaz's favor, Ruth boldly requests his grace. You know, if Ruth hadn't known Boaz, if Ruth didn't already been working in Boaz's field and seeing the favor that Boaz was already given to her, Ruth may have been tempted, just like Naomi, to manipulate. She may have been tempted to seduce Boaz or to go about this marriage in a wrong manner. Listen, but Ruth had been working in Boaz's field for a few months now. And this whole time, Boaz has freely, without Ruth deserving it, protected her. And not only has he protected her, but for these past few months, again, Boaz has freely, with grace, provided for her of his own free will. Listen, Ruth had experienced Boaz's abundant blessing. Ruth had experienced, experienced Boaz's free grace. She knew of his kindness. She knew of his mercy. And this gave her a bold faith to ask the unthinkable. In the same way, God's grace and goodness in our life should give us bold faith. If God has woken you up this morning, listen, if he has fed you every day, if he has provided, if he has provided a roof over your head every night, if he has comforted you, directed you, and strengthened you, if he's done it before, then we with faith can know that the God has proven himself to be faithful and true. will do it again. God's goodness in the past should strengthen our faith in the future. Listen, the same God that saved you is the God that can sustain you. Are you going through a trial? Are you dealing with tough times? Are you dealing with sickness and disease? Do you feel lost? Do you feel empty? Do you feel lonely? Do you feel like you've been abandoned? Hebrews 4.16 tells us to therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Listen, just as Ruth threw away all of Naomi's plants and she says to Boaz, save me. Boaz, help me. Boaz, Marry me. Some of you need to throw away your plans. Some of you need to throw away your schemes and this, this, this idea of trying to do things on your own and figuring life out for yourself. 
And you need to, with bold faith, just turn to the Lord and say, God, I need you. As we look at Ruth's proposal, I want us to remind us this morning that we must walk by faith and not by manipulation. We've seen Naomi's plan. We've seen Ruth's proposal. And in the back half of this text, we see Boaz's promise. In verse 10, Boaz says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for you have showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. Insomuch as you followed not young men, whether poor or rich, and now, my daughter, fear not. I will do for you all that you required, for all the city of my people knows that you are a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am your near kinsman. However, there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform for you the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman for you, then I, as long as the Lord lives, will do it. Lie down until the morning. After Ruth, with bold faith, calls into Boaz for marriage, we see Boaz graciously accepts and blesses Ruth. Boaz says to Ruth, I will do all that you have requested, for you are a virtuous woman. You know, in all aspects, Ruth personifies excellence. You know, that word virtuous is the same language used in the Proverbs 31, woman. Ruth is the epitome of what it means to be that Proverbs 31 woman. But as we see Boaz's response, there's only one problem. We can't quite have the happy ending that we're hoping for yet. Boaz tells Ruth that there's actually another man who is a closer relative, a kinsman redeemer that is able to marry you and buy back your land and your name. And Boaz says to Ruth, listen, I'm going to go to this redeemer and see if he wants to marry you. And if not, I will gladly do it myself. You know, there's a stark contrast between the methods of Boaz and the methods of Naomi. Naomi tried to manipulate a marriage out of Boaz. Yet Boaz, though he desired to marry Ruth, did things the right way, knowing that if it was God's will, it would be done. Boaz could have easily not mentioned the other redeemer. Boaz could have said, yes, Ruth, I will marry you, and took Ruth as his own. But Boaz wanted to do things right. And as they finish this conversation, Boaz tells Ruth to lie down till the morning. You know, not only was Ruth a virtuous woman, but we, we again just continue to see the godliness and the righteousness of Boaz. As Boaz tells Ruth, lie down to the morning because he doesn't want Ruth to be walking the streets of Bethlehem at night. He says, I don't, I don't want you to be in danger. He continues this, this protective covering over her. And he says, when the sun starts to come up, then you can leave. But he says he's going to keep her visit a secret so that he doesn't tarnish her name. He says, you're a virtuous woman, and he knows this looks kind of sketchy for you to be leaving the threshing floor in the morning. So I want you to leave before anybody can see you, because I want people to continue to see you as that virtuous woman. You know, and as we read just through this 
passage, I want to answer a question that I'm sure some of you are probably asking, a question that I was asking myself as I was reading through this. And I think it's clear in our text that there is not any sexual immorality that takes place. You know, again, we see the virtuousness of Ruth, and we see the righteousness of Boaz, and we see that Boaz even insists that there's not even the appearance of evil in the morning. And when morning comes, Boaz, in typical fashion, again, blesses Ruth abundantly. He says he gave Ruth six epas. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how she got this home. If you remember in chapter 1, Ruth, at the end of the day, had gathered one epa of barley. And that was, I think it was 30 to 50 pounds. So Boaz has just, again, abundantly blessed Ruth and given her six epas to take back to Naomi. Look at verse 16. It says, verse 16, Ruth is now back home. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, who are you, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done to her. So when Naomi says to Ruth, who are you? She's not, she knows who Ruth is. What she's asking is what happened. Are you married or are you still single? And so Ruth tells, tells Naomi all that has happened. And she said, these six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, go not empty and to thy mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. As we close with looking at Boaz's promise, I believe that we are just reminded that grace will see us through. Boaz promised to redeem Ruth, but it wasn't going to be immediate. But as Ruth waited, Ruth had a hope that her Redeemer would return. And for Ruth, that was enough. You know, so often in our lives, we want immediate answers. So often we want immediate healing, immediate provision, immediate direction. But God's grace is all that we need. In 2 Corinthians, as we see the Apostle Paul in the middle of his sufferings, Paul says he pleaded with the Lord three times, Lord, take this trial from me, take this affliction from me. Paul wanted an immediate answer to his problem, and Paul says in verse 9 that God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Listen, God's unmerited favor the sense of belonging when you feel abandoned, the comfort when you grow impatient, his embrace when you feel forgotten. You know, some of us need to stop looking for answers and start trusting God. As Ruth waited for Boaz to redeem her, we wait for Jesus to redeem us and to come back to make all things right. What I love about Boaz is that in the meantime, while Ruth waits, he leaves her with barley. And in verse 18, he says, don't go home empty. Don't go home empty. Listen, in chapter 1, Naomi said the Lord had brought her to Bethlehem empty. But now that they've met the Redeemer, 
They don't have to be empty anymore. They have provision. They have hope for a future. As you leave Landmark Baptist Church this morning, don't go home empty. Just as Boaz was the answer to Naomi and Ruth's problems, Jesus Christ is the answer to humanity's problem. So we live in a world that is broken, a world that is sin-cursed, a world where emptiness abounds and where we are all in need of redemption. We are in need of grace and saving. You can't earn God's grace. You can't manipulate God's grace. But rather, God's grace is freely given. It was freely given through the death, burial, and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ you know, I just, want to, I just want to challenge you, if you are empty this morning, and you say, listen, I've tried everything, and nothing seems to fill, nothing seems to help, I just want to challenge you to try Jesus. Just try him, put him to the test, taste and see that the Lord is good. With a bold faith, call upon his name for salvation. Listen, and if you know Jesus as Savior, and yet you say, I still sit here this morning and I am empty. I want to challenge you and urge you to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Listen, in your life, unless Jesus is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. You know, Blaise Pascal famously said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. No matter your circumstances, no matter the challenge you face, God's grace will see you through. Every head bow and eyes closed.